Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. John chapter 4, starting in verse number 1. If you have found that in your Bible, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And let's read those first 10 verses together, and we're going to preach the rest of the chapter. So starting in verse number 1, it says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Father, this morning our hearts are overflowing with the worship we've been led in by the children. Father, it just makes it very evident that you use all ages, all kinds, all genders. Father, you use all things for your glory. As they were singing, I couldn't help but think of the day that the rocks will cry out and sing of your glory. Father, this morning as we approach your throne of grace through your word, I ask this of you that you make so very little of me, so very much of yourself this morning, Father, that we may see you in a new light and our lives be changed forever. Pour out your living water, Father, that we may drink. And it's in the name of the living water, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were here last week, you know, we started this, this sermon series as uh, what was going to be a sermon turned into a series that's called Living Water Changes Everything. And we talked about last week that, that living water, the first thing that it changes is it changes our way. We saw that living water changes our way through that woman of Samaria that came to the well. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had left Judea, if you remember, and there was a couple of ways they could get to where they were headed in Galilee, but they chose because Jesus said he needed or he must go through Samaria. And they went through Samaria, and Jesus, being in his physical body, wearied from travel, sat down at a well, and a lady came along from Samaria in the middle of the day, because it said it was the sixth hour, and came along in the middle of the day to draw water from the well. It gave us indication that this woman was an outcast, even in her own community. Uh, she came at times when no one else would be there because she didn't want the ridicule or, or she didn't want to hear the murmuring or she didn't want to see people talking about her. And we find out what it is about her that they were more than likely talking about. It was the fact she'd been married to half of the village apparently because she had several husbands and was now living with one that was not her husband. How do we know that? Because when she came to the well and she uh, approached her, Jesus said, give me some living water and, or give me a, a drink of water. And, and, uh, and she said, why, why are you dealing with me? Jesus said, well, look, if you'd knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. And she immediately was confused because he had no bucket, no rope, no way to get it. And she said that. She said, how in the world were you going to give me water? And he said, you know what? If you'd have just asked, you'd have got this living water, this living water that would spring up within you as a well. And he, and he points out this, this living water that is Jesus Christ. That it is what he, what he did for us upon a cross. 
And then he immediately approaches the moral sin in her life and mentions the fact that, that she had been immoral in, in her marriages, been immoral in the fact that she was living with a man now who was not her husband. And he immediately, when he mentions this living water that was going to spring up in her, he immediately points her to the fact that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. In need of a Savior. The same point we all have been at or are at. Because if you remember, at the foot of the cross, it's level playing field. It's level playing field. It's level playing field through Romans 3.23 when it says we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not one of us, as it says in Romans, is, is holy, is worthy, is righteous. Not a single one. We all need that living water that comes from Jesus Christ. So he immediately approached her moral sin and it changed the way she thought. About things. So the very first thing that happened when she met this living water, when this living water was introduced to her, is it changed her way. Well, the second thing where we're going to start this morning that happens when you approach that living water, when you see that living water, when you have that living water in your life, it not only changes your way, but it changes your worship. You're going to see the connection to what the kids did this morning. Because, see, it changed her way and it immediately started changing her worship. We notice in the 19th verse, which is a little ahead of where we read, it says this in the 19th verse. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. See, being confronted with sin in her life, being confronted with sin in her life, made her question the worship of her life. That's worth repeating. <laughs> Being confronted with the sin in your life should make you question the worship in your life. Her thought immediately turns to what she had been taught about in worship. She, she starts to think about her experiences. Notice how she starts off. She says, our fathers. She immediately goes back. Uh, it starts making a comparison of, of how worship has been done and how it's being done. She goes into the old faithful, how we've always done it. How we've always done it. Into the past. That's where we go immediately. We can't change things because we've always done it this way. Let me ask you a question, church. If it started off wrong, does it make it right to continue to do it? The answer to that question is no, in case you didn't know. The answer is no. And, and she says, oh, our fathers, and, and, and how did the past generations of her people worship? Should be the question on our mind, because obviously there's a comparison in worship here. We need to know because of the sin in our life and the fact that we've been forgiven. Is our worship the proper worship? Does our worship need to be changed? It says there, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Now to us. We don't have a mountain that we go to worship on. We, we don't have a, a particular a mountain that we hold holy here. As a matter of fact, if we had a mountain to, to, that we had to go worship on, I imagine our crowds on Sunday morning would be very thin because most of you live in the neighborhood and we don't always fill this building up. If I told you we had to drive a couple of three hours to get to the mountain to worship, we'd probably just be a handful of us that would be hanging out. But, but there's no mountain for us. So the first thing that she had been taught about worship was where to worship. See, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Garrison. Mount Garrison was the, the place that they worshipped. Since the Samaritans only held to the Pentateuch, which is that first five books of the Bible, they kind of held to where Abraham had built altars and where Abraham had worshipped. That's the connection to the Our Father. So they had, they had this connection to the past. And the place that, that Abraham had built an altar was this, this little place called Shechem. 
Shechem. And Mount Gerasim actually overlooks this, this valley, this, this place of, of Shechem. And it was from the top of that Mount Gerasim is where the Israelites, uh, the Israelites made an announcement. They proclaimed the promises of God before they entered into the promised land. So you can see the significance for her. For, for them, for the Samaritans, for, for the Jewish uh, thread that ran through their lives, you can see the significance of this mountain because it's this place, if you know what about the promised land, it's the place that the announcement was made as they were headed out. So, so for her and for the Samaritans, this place was, uh, was pretty important. It was a place, matter of fact, that they would build their temple, the temple that they would worship from. She also mentioned in there about the Jews, of, of which Jesus was one. If you remember, it says that the Jews, they had a place that they built a temple also. And where was that place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the, the holy city. The holy city. Even today, there's dispute over that temple mount. Today, it has two Muslim, Islamic mosques on top of the mount. On top of the mount. Because they say... That's where Muhammad and his son had come. They, they hold it as a religious site. But there is one wall left that is close to uh, the Holy of Holies of the old temple that is buried there on that mount. And it's at that, that wall that you can see the Jewish men and women going to pray and to worship at this, this mount, this, this place that they recognize, that they see as a special place. And she immediately, as she thought about how they worshipped, how she knew the Jews worshipped, she immediately started making this comparison, comparing the two in her mind. And even though she asked the question, even though she asked the question of where should you worship, the real question she was asking was how should you worship? See, in her mind, it was a question of how. This question, as a matter of fact, has been a dividing point of money of, among evangelical churches for years now. It's been a dividing point, even among evangelical churches for years now. How are we supposed to worship? What type of music are we supposed to use? What kind of preaching? What is a pastor supposed to wear whenever he preaches? Uh, how can we make it more convenient for people to come? Change hours. Let's, let's, let's give a couple of services. That way if they have something to do, we, we have an early service they can still get the rest of their day on. You know, maybe even throw in a Saturday. That way you know, they have all a Sunday off or something. You know, uh, How can we make it more, my favorite word, relevant to the world? You know, there's been a whole uh, movement of relevance in, in our worship to the world. Sermon for another time. We don't have time for that one this morning. Some of the greatest discussions in our churches today, among Baptist churches, among evangelical churches, among those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, some of the greatest discussions in churches today, and I use discussions lightly, is about worship styles. It really is. It's about worship styles. Some of you have come uh, to Morse Creek Baptist Church from places that had other worship styles. Some of you have come from some that had uh, elaborate worship styles that were much like uh, shows with uh, fantastic bands and, and light shows and all that. Well, you know what? I would put those bands up against that group of kids right there any day. <laughs> any day. I would rather have them lead me in worship than a paid group of instrumentalists, but that's just my opinion. But some of you have come from the opposite direction. Churches where you only sing those things that are in the hymn, you, the hymn book. You sing them in the timing that comes in the old hymn book, not the new celebration hymnal. And you come from that very rigid world. 
So we have these discussions. Should we be more contemporary? Should, should we blend? Should we do a little contemporary? Should we do a little old? Should, should we do that? Should we have a contemporary service and, and a traditional service? That way we, we cover everyone. And those questions go on. But you see, Jesus answered a Samaritan woman's question, and I think in the process, answers our question about worship. Look with me at verse 21. Verse 21, he says this, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Wow. He goes on at 22 to say, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus builds on a little truth that he laid on the woman back in verse 13 and verse 14 when he was changing her way. Whenever he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He had given her those words and changed her way. Now he's using the phrase that he gave her there, and he's getting ready to change her worship. He's getting ready to change her worship. He had told her that he was the living water, and he had told her that whoever, whoever comes and drinks of that living water will gain eternal, everlasting life. You want to know how to change your worship? Believe those two things. Believe those two things. See, Jesus pointed her back to the person of worship. You see, in her question of how you were to worship, she had all the right letters. She just had them in the wrong order. You see, the problem was she had those in an order that we put them in in our mind in our world today. See, the priority of worship is not how. The priority of worship is who. The priority of worship is who? He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. He tells her that her worship is futile. All those functions, all those things, all those repetitive things they've done, all the things that they did because the forefathers had done it, the place that they worshiped because that was the place that they were told to worship, the way they approached worship, the sacrifices they made, all of those things were futile because she did not know the object of worship, God. All the outward things that you do are useless if your heart isn't consumed with Jesus Christ. If what he is telling her is that what you've been doing, what you've been taught to do, is useless. He goes on the second part of that verse. He says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. You see the comparison that he made? He said, you've been going through the motions and working. You've been doing all the outward things. You've been worshiping, not knowing why, but at least we, when we worship, we know why. We know there is salvation. We know salvation has been sent. He makes a, a tongue-in-cheek statement about for salvation is of the Jews. For if you remember, if you remember the Old Testament, it says it came first to the Jews. And when the Jews rejected, 
It went to the Gentiles. Remember a fellow named Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. His ministry turned the way the gospel was spread from being something that was given to the Jews to a, now it was handed to the Gentile world. The Gentile world. Jesus points out to her that proper worship begins with a change in your way, like he had told her about the living water and it's springing up. So it started with this change in your way. And when he confronted her about her sin, about her muddled husbands, about her living with one who's not her husband, it started this change within her. This change within her because she understood that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. She understood that there was not one righteous as the Bible says. She understood that there was only one way, one truth, one life, and she was staring him in the eyeballs. He told her that. He said, if you knew who this was, if you knew this person whose voice you hear, whose face you see, whose eyes you look into, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. See, he knew that telling her about who he was would change her way forever would change her way. And a change of her way was a change of her heart. And a change of her heart was going to change her worship forever. You see, he says in verse 23, But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Jesus says the hour is coming, and now is. John was written a while back. <laughs> if Jesus said, and now is at that time, I will guarantee you now it is time to worship. Just as he said, he's speaking of this new covenant, this new covenant that's about to happen. The old sacrificial, sacrificial system that they've been practicing both in Jerusalem, been practicing on top of Mount Garrison, have been practicing in the religious world for so long was about to end. It was about to become one sacrifice for all of humanity, for all of time, and it was going to be Jesus Christ. Kay mentioned the cross being empty. Why is the cross so important to us? Have you ever thought about the fact, how many of you, just show of hands, wear a piece of jewelry that has a cross on it? Anybody? Yeah. How many of you would wear a electric chair around your neck? Anybody? Think about it. To the Romans, what was that? It was our electric chair. You wear a cross around your neck not because it's an instrument of death, but because it's an instrument of life. See, you wear it because it's an instrument of life. What he's, what he's saying to her is, you know what? The old system that you were doing, the old things that you were doing, are getting ready to disappear. What's going to happen is I'm going to crawl across the cross. I'm going to stretch out my arms and be nailed to the cross because of your sin. I'm going to have a crown of thorns shoved upon my head. I'm going to have spears shoved in my side. I'm going to die on a cross for you. Guess what? He's looked down through history. He's telling you that same thing this morning. He's telling you that same thing. All those things that you've tried to do to gain the favor of God are useless. What he did was crawl up on a cross so that you could have a relationship with God the Father. And he's telling that woman this morning. This morning, now is the time. It's right here upon you. Notice what he didn't say. You have another chance tomorrow. <laughs> See, he's saying now is the time. He's speaking of that new covenant that started with his death upon a cross. It went to a burial in a tomb that three days later when they walked up to the tomb, they went, something has happened because Jesus is nowhere to be found. You see, the reason you wear a cross around your neck without a Jesus on it is because Jesus is alive and well today. 
He is alive and well today. He conquered sin, death, and the grave for you so that you might have eternal life. That should change our worship. He's telling her the old sacrificial system wouldn't work. You no longer needed to do that. It wasn't sufficient to do anything. That there's going to be a new sacrifice that's going to last forever. One man, one death, one Savior who's living forever. You don't need to get pumped up to worship. When you realize that you're worshiping someone who paid the ultimate price for your sin. Who crawled upon a cross that you deserved and I deserved. Who was buried in a tomb and was found to be risen from the dead because of the power of God in him. That same power the Bible says that indwells you and me. And Jesus makes a bold statement about how that will change our way and our worship. In verse 24 he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There are two things in that 23rd and 24th verse that speak of a change of our worship. The very first thing I noticed as I looked at those, it says God is spirit. What does that mean? That means he has no, no physical form. He's not in a physical body that's held in a particular place. So a question about where to worship God is really answered with that statement. If God is spirit, where is God? Everywhere. We use a great big word that I know you want to go home and memorize and learn how to spell and all those things. It's called omnipresent. Omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. And as a believer, where is the Spirit of God in relation to you? He's in you. See, the Bible tells you that he indwells you. The day that you were justified, forgiven, adopted into the family, the Holy Spirit came to indwell you. And you were filled with the Holy Spirit. As a side note, the only question today is, is not whether or not you're filled and you have all of the Holy Spirit. The question today is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? You see, you were filled with the Holy Spirit the day that you came to know him. So we are forever in the presence of the Spirit of God. So where then are we, if God is spirit and God indwells us, where are we to worship? You see your question? Where are we to worship? We're to worship God at all times, in all places, in all things. You want to change your worship? Realize it's not an hour on Sunday morning. It's 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, even the 366th day on the leap year. Realize the way you sleep, the way you eat, the way you talk, the way you relate to other people, the way you watch TV, the way you read books, the way you see the news. All of those things should be a worship to God. <laughs> worship is not something we come and do on a Sunday morning. What we do on Sunday morning is called corporate worship. It's corporate worship. It's the body of Christ gathering together. And it should be an outpouring of the worship that we have every day in our personal lives. See, you shouldn't come in this building to be pumped up for worship. You should be pumped up to get in this building to worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, it's not about the music. It's, it's not about any of those. See, when we worship on Sunday... And it's less than it should be. 
when you leave this place and you say, you know what, that just wasn't what I expected. Do you know why? Because your personal worship coming into this place was less than God expected. See, if you want to leave this place saying, wow, I've been in the presence of God, be in his presence all day long, every day. Because it's been in his presence all day long, every day, that drives you to come to this place to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ and just praise an almighty God that has supplied everything right down to eternal life for you. For you. See, when worship on Sunday is less than it should be, it's, it's not about how moving the music is. It's not about friendly the people are. It's not about the, the kids didn't get to do this or that. It's not even about the sermon and how bad the sermon is. See, no, it's about how your personal worship has been all week. It's about how meaningful our personal worship with an almighty God has been in our life Monday through Saturday. And that personal daily worship of God causes a desire to build in us so that when we gather at this place on Sunday mornings, we just can't wait to worship God with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know this should be a reflection of what we're going to do for all of eternity in a place called heaven? And church, I don't mean to get on you. The deacons have a meeting tomorrow night. They're more than likely going to talk about me, so I'll give them something. How about this? If this is what heaven looks like, I don't want to go. I'm going to tell you, I read in the Bible that it says the angels are crying across the throne, holy, holy, holy. We sing a song about holiness, and quite honestly, I started to go get the shock machine out and see if we couldn't get a couple of folks going. I don't know what it takes. I honestly don't know what it takes to make you realize that the God that we have the opportunity to worship seeks your worship. If this is what worship looks like, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't know any other way to take it. Absolutely breaks my heart to think that this is what we'll do for all of eternity. I know it's not. <laughs> I know it's not what we will do for all of eternity. We'll be crying with the angels. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are holy. Another time. The second thing. The first thing is God is spirit. We should worship God everywhere, all day long, in everything that we do. Because that spirit dwells us. The second thing that he mentions here is that God is Father. God is Father. Saying he's spirit means he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's omnipotent. He is sort of mysterious when you think about him being spirit. But now Jesus says that he is Father. What does Father speak to you about? To me, it reminds me of a relationship. A relationship. When we worship God, we worship him as one who has a relationship with him. As a spirit, he has this sense of unknowability, doesn't he? When we think about spirits, you kind of wonder, what does he look like? How does he think? There's this mystery that surrounds it. But because he put on flesh and he came to earth as Jesus, we now can have a relationship with him. A relationship with this spirit that's omnipresent in all places, in all believers, you now can have a personal relationship with 
The powerful word in that statement is personal relationship with. Doesn't change the fact that he's spirit. Doesn't change the fact that he's everywhere. But what it does change is the fact that we know that we are loved. We are loved because he is our father. He loves us because we are his children. When you recognize you have a father that has loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son to you, worship becomes a natural outpouring in your life. Look what the woman said in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You see, when when confronted about proper worship, the woman says, I believe there will come a Messiah. I believe there will be this Christ. For even the Samaritans held to the belief that there was this God-given person that was going to be a Messiah. Kind of sounds like the Jews, doesn't it? It's going to come. It's going to come. But see what Jesus said to her in verse 26? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. Jesus cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Worship is not about how we worship. Worship is about who we worship. The word used here for worship is proskuneo. Proskuneo is the word. There are several words that we we translate as worship in our English. This particular one is proskuneo. It's interesting. It can be defined a couple of ways. Uh, one, of, one of the ways that it can be defined is kiss the hand towards one. Kiss the hand towards one. The, another way that it can be defined is prostrate oneself. I find it very interesting as I thought about those words. See, the idea of the worship here is the action towards the one who is being worshipped. An action towards the one. To kiss the hand towards one gives me this picture of kingship, lordship. You ever seen when the subjects come into the presence of the king and he extends whatever or they kiss the signet ring? It gives me this picture of this king, this lord. This lord and worshiping being, kissing his ring, coming into his presence. But then when you think about prostrating oneself, not only do you get a picture of kingship, but you get this picture of complete awe and reverence. Complete all in reverence. Coming into the presence of one and all that you can do, you can't even stand in his presence, you prostrate yourself. It's not a simple kneeling at the altar. It is a lying flat on the floor stretched out before an almighty God. What an awesome picture. What an awesome picture. So, so who is it that we worship? Who do we worship? I told you the letters were in the wrong order. So let's look at the who, the who of worship. He's worthy. The W reminds me of the fact that he's worthy. Worthy because of all that he's done. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the redeemer of our our very souls through his son, Jesus Christ. He's our comforter. He's our healer. He's our living God. He is our all in all. He is the great I am. There is no other. He is worthy of our worship. There is nothing that we have. There is nothing that we will ever be that doesn't come through the hands of an almighty God. He is worthy of our worship. When I think about the age, I think about the fact that he is holy. He is holy. You're talking about the prostrated yourself. See, when I think about the worthy, I think about the kissing of the ring. When I think about his holiness, I think about the prostrated myself before him. 
See, in him there is no darkness. In him there is only truth. There is no lie. In him there is mercy. There is grace. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is everything that is light. There is no darkness. He is holy. This God that we approach this morning in corporate worship is holy. And guess what he says about you, the believer? Be holy as I am holy. See, our worship this morning should start with us being holy, being willing to lie prostrate before an almighty God and confess our sins, trusting in the fact that he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, being worthy to be honest with God about the challenges in our life, when our spiritual life seems like a desert, being honest with him, when our spiritual life seems as if we're on top of a mountain and we could shout for years, be honest with him. When we know that we're coming up short, be honest with Him. Because you have a Father that loves you. A Father that loves you. And the O and who reminds me of the fact that we worship the one who calls us to be obedient. See, worship has to do with obedience. How do we know that? Because it says in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The way you worship isn't an option. It isn't an option. It isn't the way I want to do it. It's not the way that I think it should be done. It says you must worship in spirit and truth. See, to worship Him in spirit means it has to be internal, not external. Worship starts internal. To go through the motions but not have a heart for worship is futile. It's going to Mount Garrison just because it's the place. You see, to worship in truth means that we're to worship the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible. Not God the way we want Him to be, but the God of the Bible the way He says that He is. Speaking of corporate worship, because we're almost out of time, it says, and everything that we do personally and as a church should flow out of our worship. A writer of old back in the 70s, I think it was, W.T. Connor wrote this, The first business then of a church is not evangelism, nor missions, nor benevolence. It is worship. The worship of God in Christ should be at the center of all else that the church does. It is the mainspring of all the activity of the church. We would do well to remember that all that we do for God as a church must come out of our worship of a worthy, holy God. It's not about the action. It's about the heart. Very quickly, living water changes our way. Living water changes our worship. And finally, we see that living water changes our witness. We won't have time to read all of this. You go home and read it. But starting there in that 27th verse, it starts talking about these disciples returned. Over in the 8th verse, it said, as they reached the well and Jesus sat down, the disciples had left and gone into the city. It says in verse 8. Well, here we see him returning back in, in verse 27. It says, and at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with this particular woman. We talked about last week the strangeness of it. A Jew talking to a Samaritan and a, and a, a lone man talking to a woman in this culture was not the norm. So yes, things were a little bit strange. So they showed back up from their shopping trip. They'd been to the local Walmart and they'd picked up a few things. And here they were moseying back up and here sat Jesus at the well talking to a Samaritan woman. And the first thing that comes to their mind is, why is he talking to this woman? What is it that she wants? Uh, 
yet nobody asks, it says. No, nobody utters a word. Then it tells us in verse 28, oddly enough, it jumps and it says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. Disciples show up. In their mind, they say, what's he doing? The woman leaves the water pot, which, by the way, she had come to collect water, which would require a pot to return it with. But she leaves it, and she heads into the city. Notice that she's heading where the disciples just left. Oddly enough, they had just left. The guys who knew Jesus the best had just been in this city that was close by. Now this woman, who's an outcast to the community, who tries to avoid people at all cases and all chances, is headed into the city. And it says in verse uh, uh, 29, actually, yeah, verse 29, it says, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So when she leaves Jesus sitting by the well next to her water pot and disciples standing there with a dumb look on their face and she runs back to the city, what's the first thing that she says to them? Come and see. Come and see this man who told me all things about me. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah that we've been looking for? This woman was so overcome with Jesus that she left her pot and ran to tell the very people she avoided because of their criticism and ridicule of her. I wonder if the disciples had made the same announcement when they were in town. They had just left the city. I wonder. It says in verse 30, Then they, talking about those in the city, went out of the city and came to him. Her announcement was so compelling that all of those who thought that she was an outcast, all of those that normally would have shunned her, all those that normally didn't want to be around her, all of those that had more things to say behind her back than to her face, suddenly said, i got to see this. They loaded up the minivans, the go-karts, the wagons, the cars, the trucks, and they headed out. Because she said, this man has told me everything. Could he be the Christ? Back at the well, very quickly, Jesus has been dealing with his disciples. He's been hanging out there with his disciples. It's obvious that their priorities are a little messed up by the conversation. I'm going to quickly blow through it. You read about it when you get home. Jesus is about to straighten them out. They immediately go to what they've been to the city to do. See, their focus, when they got to the well, Jesus sat down. Their focus was, my stomach's hungry. We're going to get food. So they head out to the city. When they return, they think, a little strange. He's talking to a woman. But the first thing that they say to him is, hey, you need to eat a little something there. If you look at verse 31, it says, Rabbi, eat. Their mind's still stuck on this physical thing, <laughs> their physical body. It says, eat. But you'll notice in verse 32, he tells them that he's got plenty to eat. He's got plenty of bread to eat. They just don't understand what that bread is. In verse 33, they try to figure out who, who brought him something to eat. We, we don't get it. How, how did he eat? We didn't get back from the city yet. How, who brought it? Then Jesus explains to them their lack of focus. Their lack of focus on the thing that is the greatest of needs. Their lack of focus on the fact that they were worshiping their physical needs and not paying any attention to the spiritual needs of those around them. See, what Jesus says to them, it's, it's not about that physical hunger. 
It's about doing the will of God. And even though God desires to feed the hungry, understand, God desires to feed the hungry. He does not desire they be fed physically, but spend an eternity in hell because nobody bothered to feed them spiritually. Everything we do, right down to the feeding of the physical bodies, needs to come out of worship of God because we're concerned about their soul. See, it says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was trying to help them understand that the most important thing they could be doing was God's will. And where is it that we come to know God's will in our life? I find this an interesting connection. Notice the order of things that he did with this woman. He first changed her way by introducing her to living water. He then changed her worship to worshiping the giver of that living water. And now he talks to them about the will. Where is it that we know the will of God in our lives? It's the continual worship of a holy, worthy God that reveals to you the will of God for your life. You can't show up on Sunday morning for an hour and hear a sorry sermon and go home and say, I know what God has in store for me. No. It takes a continual fellowship and worship of an almighty God for him to speak into your heart and mind so that you understand that which he would have you personally do and us as a church do. Understanding the will of God takes some work. And Jesus goes to the place of the greatest urgency very quickly in 35. In verse 35, the second part of verse 35 there when he says this, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me in 34 and 35. He says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the field, for they are already white with harvest. Ring bells of somewhere else in Scripture. You've heard that? Has he called his disciples? He said, We need laborers because the field is covered with the harvest. We need laborers. Jesus tells them, now is the time. Now is the time to be going about doing God's will, to be worshiping here with spirit and truth, about knowing what it is that he would have you do in the harvest for the church. It's time for us to be doing what God tells us to do to reach the lost people around us. It's time that we see the fields white with harvest and get in there and be laborers with God in that. What is the reward for us for doing that? He tells us in verse 36. He says that he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Church, there is a reward that waits, that just awaits those who will get into the harvest as God so leads, both in the sowing and the reaping in that harvest. But to gain that reward, you have to be a laborer. You have to be a laborer. Jesus tells his disciples that he has sent them out to reap. I've sent you out. I've sent you out to reap outside of the walls of the church in Jerusalem, outside of their comfort zone. Outside of those traditions, I've sent you out. Jesus' day is telling his church, it's time to get about reaping for the fields that surround us are ready. They are ready. How ready were the spiritual fields there? And how ready are our spiritual fields? In closing, verse 39 tells us, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. 
Think about who that woman was just a few short verses ago. A woman with multiple husbands leading an adulterous life, living with a man who is not her husband, coming from a religion that stands on tradition, not on the Word of God, doing all things wrong. Yet God changes her way, which changes her focus of worship, and now changes her witness because it says many believed because of the Word she testified. What did she say? He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Her changed way, her changed worship, led to, led to a changed witness. An outcast woman tells her world, Samaria, tells her world that she's found Christ, and they flock to him, and they believe. The disciples walked in the exact same city, to buy food, and no one came. Let that sink in. His disciples had just left the city. No one came. A woman whose life was changed, whose worship was changed, runs into the city with a changed witness, and the city comes. What's the difference? The woman had drunk of the living water, and her way was changed. She drunk in the living water and her worship was changed. She drunk in the living water and her witness was changed. Church, maybe today we need a fresh cup of water. Maybe today we need to remember. We need to remember what Christ did for us. Maybe a drink of this water would change our way. Would change our worship as a church, both personally and corporately. Maybe it would change our witness. Who knows? Maybe God has put us here for such a time as this. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.